You're listening to Speaking of Racism, the podcast dedicated to frank, honest, and respectful discussions about race and racism in the U.S. I'm your host, Jen Kinney. Pull up a chair and let's talk. Special thanks to Grapes for the music. The song is I Don't Know featuring Jay Lang. Today on the show, I am excited to welcome John Williams. He is the director of the Center for Racial Reconciliation at Fellowship Monrovia. Welcome to the show, John. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you on. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, um, I have been working in this area of racial reconciliation for a little over 30 years. I first was introduced to the concept of racial reconciliation um, and the kind of the ministry of racial reconciliation through Dr. John Perkins. I met him well way back in 1986 when he came to my church. I was living in New Jersey and uh, mm-hmm. I was just completely blown away by really the sheer force of who he was and his talk about the importance of reconciliation. And fast forward six months later, I was packing up, moving to Pasadena, California to work with him at his ministry uh, called the Harambe Center. That's how I got started in doing racial reconciliation. And I was on staff there for a number of years. And then I went back to school, uh, got my law degree. One of the things that John talks about in terms of reconciliation and how to make it impactful is uh, very similar to what Brian Stevenson talks about in terms of getting proximate, getting proximate with the problem or getting proximate with people. So after I finished law school, my wife and family, we moved into Northwest Pasadena, which is a low income neighborhood to live there and to kind of live out the ministry of reconciliation. And we lived there for over 20 years. And and so I've stayed in uh, or talking about and living this concept of racial reconciliation since then. And three years ago, I decided to leave the practice of law and come on staff here at Fellowship Monrovia as the director for the Center of Racial Reconciliation. And I've been doing this full time since then. What did it look like to live out reconciliation? Messy. <laughs> in a yeah. word, is, is messy because I think one of the challenges that I see with reconciliation or anti-racism work, or however you want to frame it or, or call it, is that a lot of times when you're trying to live this out, people are operating under different definitions of what, of what race is, of what racism is and different definition of what reconciliation is. And so for a lot of people, sure, reconciliation simply means as long as I have pleasant thoughts toward you, we're fine. But mm. for me, it's, it's something deeper that we need to be in community and we need to be in relationship to really have a personal reconciliation. And then there's more of an institutional concept of reconciliation where we need to be working toward um, helping those who are marginalized in our community or in this country. Mm-hmm. The goal here at the center is we kind of have kind of a three-pronged approach. Uh, the first part is is join the conversation. And so we have workshops and trainings and different opportunities that we create where people can come together and actually start to talk about the real issues of race, racism, and reconciliation. 
really with it with an mm-hmm. eye toward history of really looking at history and real history because in addition to having different definitions i think people tend to be a um a historical where they just don't really know what our real history is in our country and so we we spend mm-hmm. some time talking about the real history and then talking about what racism is and what true reconciliation is in terms of how we look at it and so that's kind of the first prong, which is join the conversation. The second part is if people want to go deeper or people who are in our congregation or who are in the community, uh, we have other opportunities where people can get a little bit deeper. And some of the things that we do to provide that is we have civil rights tours. So we'll take an eight day trip, for example, to the South and do a tour through the South where we actually get close to where a lot of the history of race kind of began or where, where some of the bigger mm-hmm. conflicts were. And then in addition to doing a Southern civil rights tour, we'll, we, since we're a multi-ethnic church where it's not just a, like a black, white binary, we uh, have mm-hmm. Asian Americans here, Latinos, Latinas, Native Americans. And so we do other trips as well. And so, for example, this past summer, we did an Asian American civil rights tour where we flew up to San Francisco and started at Angel Island, which was the immigration port for the West Coast where most Asian Americans or where most Asians came through. And then we just took a tour Mm -hmm. through California, looking at different Asian communities and seeing what their role is at the table of reconciliation. So that's prong number two. And then the third part is let's create community. And so, and this goes back to kind of that definition I talked about and how people look at reconciliation or anti-racism work differently a lot of people really want it to stay on the individual level. And so as long as mm. Jennifer and I get along, we're fine. Or you get people who will go through our workshops and they're motivated. And then, and a lot of times it's it's our white brothers and sisters who kind of do this. And it's like, hey, I try to befriend somebody in our church who is black and they didn't really want to be my friend. And so I'm not sure if this stuff works. Well, you have to create friendships in a community. And so we try to create spaces mm-hmm. where it's multi-ethnic um, so that people can can actually create real relationships that's not contrived or you're not just, I'm going to force you to be my black friend or force you to be my white friend. So that's kind of how we mm-hmm. look at the approach of reconciliation and in, in doing this work here at Fellowship. That's on a lot of levels. And yeah. I really appreciate that. So I'm curious, how do you facilitate oh. this process within your church? You know, do you do these events? Is this something that you're always working on? How does that work? Great, great question. Yeah. So so it's a combination of both events and something that we're always working on. So so I have the luxury of actually this is my full time position. So just mm-hmm. like everyone else, I get up in the morning, come to work stay all day. And and a big part of what I'm doing is either trying to create content, prepare for events that we may have. Uh, but it also lends itself to the opportunity of people who are either in a community or who attend our church to set up appointments to come and talk to me to kind of talk further through race and racism and reconciliation. And so... Oh. So, so, so I'm here to do those things as well as another big component of wow. what I do is, is so everyone on our staff is required to go through our trainings. And so once you mm-hmm. get hired here, we don't just hire people and say, okay, are you committed to reconciliation? Are you committed to being multi-ethnic? Um, right. So, and people come in because people would say, oh yeah, I am just to get on staff. 
But uh, once you right. actually come on staff, we try to live this out on staff as well. We want to try to model as leaders in our congregation what we're asking or calling the congregants to do. And so so mm-hmm. staff is required. Any of our interns, they're required to go through trainings. And it's really an equipping opportunity to try to teach people how to have these conversations uh, in a productive way, as well as hopefully moving them to being moved to actually go and do work of equity and do work of justice. Uh, So that's a big component of what I do in terms of training staff, informing different ministries. So for example, our family ministries this summer, they had camps and they did some work both in our neighborhoods as well as some inner city neighborhoods. And so we wanted to make sure that the camp volunteers and staff people, that they are equipped on how do you how do you talk to people cross-culturally? How do you interact? How do you go in another person's space and actually be a guest and not come in as someone mm-hmm. who's the expert? And so we talked through like, wow. what does it mean to kind of be in spaces where it's low income or it's a poor area? And how do you kind of be mm-hmm. a good Samaritan in that area or in that space? So it's so amazing for me to hear that this is even in existence, that this center exists, that you have this role, and that somebody can just walk into your office on any given day to discuss this with you, that you're thinking about how to prepare people going into the field and into missions. Like, that is just amazing. Yeah. we, we Seriously. I, like, wow. No, I feel... <laughs> Thank you. I feel like it's a huge benefit to be able to to do this kind of work in the church setting because I am like you. I, in a large part, I've been disappointed generally with how this conversation, and I'm using air quotes, how this conversation typically occurs. And it usually is yeah. a panel discussion with experts on the stage, and they tell us what their thoughts are on reconciliation and then they leave the last 15 or 20 minutes for question and answers. And so as in, you know, a congregant yeah. or just a community member, you're just sitting there saying, hey, wait, I have some thoughts and some ideas about this as well. Um, and there's no real interaction with that. And then that's it. Mm-hmm. And so we check the box as a church and say, OK, we've done our reconciliation work for the year or five years. And we won't revisit this until some tragedy occurs on the local news or the national news. And then we'll scramble right. around trying to to do something where our approach and in, in our lead pastor, Albert Tate, constantly says this, let's be proactive. Let's be prepared before the incidents happen, which causes mm-hmm. uh, more and more people to want to have these conversations. So let's be prepared for those things to happen so that we can just have a better conversation with it and and guide people through it a little bit better and and a lot more with a lot more maturity. Uh, You mentioned that you are part of a multi-ethnic church. And I'm curious if you can explain for us what the difference is between a racially diverse church and a multi-ethnic church. On the pulpit at the beginning of service, we say we're a gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, intergenerational church. And we strive to make disciples like we want whoever comes to our church to know that this is what we're about. So every single Sunday mm-hmm. you come, you're going to hear that. But uh, in terms of the difference between multi-ethnic and, and multiracial, we do have like black folks who come who may be from the Caribbean or who are African-Americans who are born here. 
So we, we try to make sure we take into account that distinction as well as, as not just saying, oh, we just have black folks who come here or, or characterizing all of them as African American. And that's especially true with Asian Americans. So at our church, we have Korean Americans, Japanese Americans, Filipino Americans who, who come to our church. And so by just saying we're a multiracial church, we kind of feel like we wouldn't capture everyone. So it's important for us to say we're a multi-ethnic church because we really want to honor every diverse person or group that comes to our church. So our leadership team is multi-ethnic as well. And so our lead pastor right. is African-American and our executive pastor is white. And then we have Mexican-Americans who um, are on our, on our leadership team. We have Asian-Americans, uh, African-Americans, and even within Asian-Americans, like we have Korean-Americans and Chinese-Americans. And even with our Latina Latinas, we have someone who's a Salvadorian-American and someone who's Mexican-American. So for us, it's important to make that distinction because their experiences are very, very different. And so when we start talking about right. race or we talk about an issue that pertains to race, they may come from different perspectives because of they're from different parts of the world um, in terms of their family origin. Also, something that I've noticed is that when you have a diversity among leadership, that you also have a diversity within the body. And I think right. that's something that a lot of people in the church today just don't quite understand. And mm -hmm. they want diversity in their body, but they don't necessarily understand what that means or what that requires. I mean, I think that's critically important that people see themselves reflected in leadership, as yeah. well as to be able to call out the differences that are right in front of us in a congregation. So one joke that our pastor tells a lot during the holidays, like Thanksgiving and Christmas is, the difference between pumpkin pie and sweet potato pie and how black people right. are not going to eat pumpkin pie. <laughs> and so, <laughs> you know, so that's a silly thing, but, but just to let people know right. there's differences and there's differences in style and taste and perspectives and to call mm -hmm. those things out and to embrace them rather than to just kind of draw lines and say, we're going to be like you can have a diverse congregation, but still have a uniform thought. And we, we try right. and strive to not have that. How has this program been received? So it's funny. It's, it's generally well received because um, I think we've had the good fortune of our, our church is only seven years old. From the beginning, uh, when the church was launched, it was launched with the purpose of as I said, that gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, oh. intergenerational piece to it, where it's like we have mm -hmm. um, really made it our goal or our aim to to make it multi-ethnic. That's been the goal from the beginning, and that's made it a little bit easier. And so people mm -hmm. come to our church with the understanding that they, they really talk about race. Like it's not just this thing where they try to be racially represented we really are trying to be mm -hmm. racially reconciled, which is which are two very different things. And so mm -hmm. um, so generally it's received well. And then and then there are pockets of people who who come to our church and who don't want anything to do with, you know, the, the ministry or the, the uh, Center for Racial Reconciliation. And they just want to come on Sundays and hear good preaching. And so we understand that that dynamic is here as well. But we're constantly trying to mm -hmm. invite and hopefully compel people that it's important to get engaged uh, in this process. And so for us, that's why we require our leadership to go through this so that 
if one thinks they can avoid talking about reconciliation or dealing with issues of diversity, that's not going to be the case because our family ministries pastor or our communications team, they're all thinking Mm. and trying to live out through that particular lens. So when we, anything that we put out, you know, publish through communications, we, we look at like, are we being, are we favoring one group of people over another in terms of the images that we're showing or the people we have speaking and all of that. So we really spend some, a good Mm. amount of time thinking through um, who's the best person or what's the best way of of presenting something that's going to um, give honor to uh, the different types of people who come to our church. Tell us about your racial reconciliation events. How do those take place? How long are they? And if you can tell us a bit about that process, I would love to hear that. Sure. So when we first launched our Center for Racial Reconciliation a little over three years ago, we it was right around 2016. Um, and if you can recall that summer, there were a lot of police shootings of innocent African-American men and women. And there was the Dallas shooting as well. And so for us, we had already been planning to to launch the center. And we thought it would be a great idea and a great way to launch it and looking at the the biblical discipline of of lament. And so we knew that that summer we were going to have uh, Soon Chen Ra come and speak at our church, and he had just written his book, uh, Prophetic Lament. And so we kind of leveraged his uh, message to our congregation. And our first event was a Thursday night. Again, it was after many of these shootings. And it was right after he had preached that Sunday, and we had a night of lament. And it was an event where we, our congregants and the community could come, and we weren't going to talk about the issues. We weren't going to take any positions or sides and make any commentary. It was really just to kind of state the obvious that um, there's a lot of racial conflict and turmoil. And and let's just kind of state the obvious first and let's lament that. And then from there, our goal was to, as I said earlier, to do full day trainings. And so we have workshops that we set up and it's their full days are from 830 to 430. And we start the mornings talking about history and a biblical foundation first before we even get to any definitions, any tools. And I'm using air quotes on how to talk about race. Uh, we firmly believe you need to understand the history of race in our country and the history of racism. And so we do different exercises to talk about the history. And then halfway through the morning or almost toward the end of the morning is when we actually start talking about the difference between individual racism and institutional or structural racism. Um, and then for that, our part one workshop we spend the rest of the, the day talking about um, how does that manifest in different communities? How does that manifest in the Latino community? How does that manifest in the Black community? How does that manifest in white communities? Um, and what does that mean? And getting into I- issues of like of white privilege and white priority, getting into and looking at those issues head on, and then looking at, well, how does racism impact people of color, like what's the eternal internalized racial uh, oppression or inferiority that happens. And for our white brothers and sisters looking at internalized superiority that happens, but looking at it and talking about it in a way that 
this is something that you're always going to be working towards or working to identify and to acknowledge as opposed to some magic formula that if you go through these workshops that you won't be racist anymore, or if you go through these workshops, you won't feel oppressed anymore. And so kind of looking at it in the same way as any other area of discipleship. And so, for example, and it's fascinating because you can talk about in church, you can talk about greed, or you can talk about lust, or you can talk about some other, in air quotes, sin. And the congregation is fine talking about it. And the person who's up front, the preacher or the pastor talks about it and says, we all struggle with this. And no one balks at that. They just kind of like, yeah, yeah, you're right. But if we talk about Mm -hmm. race and racism, no, 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 I'm not racist. I'm not, you know, we shouldn't talk about this. Or so for us, we deal with and say, just like those other areas in your life that you struggle with, this is something you're going to struggle with because of how we are socialized in our country and how we are inundated with messages that racialize every single person in our country. And so since that's the case, let's look at it head on and let's start dealing with it and let's call it out. Let's name it and and let's move on. And so uh, and then we end the day, the first workshop with talking about lament again. Because by this time, toward the end of the day, we've heard some people talk about some really painful things. And so we want to give space to just lamenting that. And so that's kind of our what we call our 1.0 workshop. Um, and then a few weeks later, we'll have part two, where it's another full day workshop. And we'll jump right back into talking about those things, but we also add in looking at cultural racism, looking at institutional racism, and then looking at what is really biblical reconciliation. What does that mean? What does that mean both on the individual level and on the institutional level? So that's our that's kind of our two-day workshops that we just split up over a period of weeks. And then in addition to those workshops, we have kind of our specialty workshops on for example, we have a workshop for parents on how to talk to your kids about race. Because if we're saying, for us, we say we're an uh, intergenerational church, our goal is mm-hmm. to be able to train and teach people at every single level uh, who comes to our church, whether it's someone who's 70 or someone who's 11, um, to, to be aware of this and to be able to have some tools to navigate uh, in the world. And so... Um, We have parent workshops on how to talk about race. We have specialty workshops where we focus on a particular uh, racial group, like we'll have an Asian American experience where we focus on the differences between Chinese American, Japanese American, and all those different hyphenated terms that we use in our country. But to spend a day or half a day what are their issues? What What is their place at the table of reconciliation and anti-racism? And so um, so we have the workshops, and I mentioned a little bit the civil rights tours that we do. And then this fall, we're going to start having book clubs as well and creating more space, more opportunities for smaller communities, because typically the workshops are pretty large. They're usually between 75 to 125 people who come. Oh, wow. Um, and so so it doesn't always lend itself to have really, you know, private conversations. And so we try to create spaces. Uh, we're trying to create smaller spaces for smaller groups of people to do that third prong that we're talking about, about creating community. 
the thing that I have found most helpful in my own personal journey in deconstruction is learning history and the importance mm -hmm. of history. So I love that you focus on that because what I have found is, you know, I have gone to events where, you know, the goal is racial reconciliation, but there yeah. is no history spoken about. And for the majority of white people, I would say there is an uh, just a, a lack of understanding from mm -hmm. either their own ignorance where they've ignored things or just the education system, you know, not teaching the truth of our history. So I think that's really essential. But one of the questions I have is how do you connect people who don't understand that they hold racist ideas mm -hmm. to this idea that they do? How, like, how do you help people transition into that place? <laughs> because, you know, we, we know white fragility and that terminology surrounding the phenomenon, but how how do we move people from one to the other where they let go of that? I'm a good person, so therefore I right. can't be racist. How do you guys handle that within that context? So so with our workshops, at the very beginning, we, we kind of have ground rules or what we call covenants. And, and one of the things, and in talking through those ground rules in terms of how we're going to do the day, we also speak very directly from the very beginning of talking about this concept of race and racism is not binary. It's not as Robin D'Angelo talks about. It's not a good, you know, a good, bad binary. So we talk about that from the beginning. And in mm -hmm. talking about that, we let people know that this is a process. No one is going to get, using quotes, no one's going to become woke through one workshop. Um, it's a process. It's a journey. And so so walking people, in particular, walking white people through and really trying to explain to them, you're not a horrible person if you have racist ideas. You, you know, it's just something mm -hmm. that you have to work through. You have to identify where it becomes problematic is when you resist and say you don't have racist ideas or you don't have some sort of internalized uh, superiority going on when you're navigating through different spaces and really just trying to let them know like the the damage that that does when you walk into a, a multi-ethnic space or where you're the only white person going into a space and you automatically have some of these things that are going on in your head and you're operating off of those. And so sometimes you don't even know you're putting people of color off. <laughs> When you walk into mm. those spaces, you, you're just being. And so for us, just trying to let them know that, yeah, this is what's happening. Um, and, and none of us have been correctly taught through our educational system, through our churches, through many of our institutions about the true history of race and racism um, mm -hmm. and the real impact of race and racism. And so for us, we just try to walk people through kind of in a method, attempt to do it in a methodical way of saying, you know, don't be so overridden with guilt and shame that you're identifying these things. We're here to continue to walk with you. So from our perspective, the way that we're trying to do is really shepherd people through this as opposed to mm -hmm. just, you know, dropping truth bombs and whatever the collateral right. damage is, is the collateral damage. The for us, the significance of doing it in the local church is you can say what you want in the workshop, but next Sunday you're going to be sitting next to that person. <laughs> so uh, if, if you keep if you continue to be a member of our church, 
some of the things that you say in these spaces, you need to know that next Sunday or some other event that we have, you're going to see that person. And I think that's what gets mm-hmm. lost, like with social media and other mediums where, okay, I'm just going to speak my truth. I'm going to say what I need to say, which is important, but not really thinking about what's the impact of that? Uh, how mm-hmm. is that going to affect someone in, in the church setting, like my who's my brother and sister? And so, um, so for us, that's kind of how we attempt to address that. But and, and look, there definitely are people who come who are angry at the end and who vow and vouch, I'm never coming back. I've I've had lunch meetings, coffee meetings with a number of people who who want to talk to me oh, afterwards and who say, mm-hmm. you know, I gotta respectfully say, John, um, I think you're doing <laughs> this all wrong. Or yeah, right. or my my favorite one is we want to be involved in reconciliation, but we're not coming to part two. Um, how can we do that? And so, <laughs> and so, what? yeah, it's, I'm telling wow. some of the things that I've heard are so fascinating. And I'm, so I, for me and my team, we've learned to kind of have responses to that. So for example, if someone okay. has lunch or coffee with someone on my team and says, we want to be a part of this reconciliation, we really believe in it, but we don't believe in how you're doing the workshops or the trainings. How can we stay engaged in my response or our response is you need to find people of color who you're going to befriend, who's going to have a truthful conversation with you about this. We don't want you to set up a Mm -hmm. friendship where you're going to be paternalistic, where it's the power dynamic is unequal. Meet someone who's a person of color, become friends with them and allow them to tell the truth to you on a friendship level. So what happens, obviously, when you give that recommendation, you just don't hear from them anymore. And some folks avoid me at church and I see it and it's funny and sad all at the same time. This is such difficult work and to wade into it so intentionally. And yet Mm -hmm. there is so much opposition and so much dysfunction and so much ego. And I mean, we could list all of the, the components in it, but yeah, so that's really interesting to hear. Uh, have you had any, just, you know, my own curiosity, have you had any situations like that, though, that have kind of surprised you and turned around where somebody has come to you and said, wow, okay, I get it now? Yes, absolutely. And those are the best. You get, you know, someone to send you a thank you card or an email and just say, like, I just didn't know. I, you know, mm. and and this is the first time and I'm still struggling with it. I'm still struggling with the concepts, but I do believe generally what, you know, your trainers and facilitators are saying, and can you walk with me on this journey or can you partner me with someone to help me walk through this journey? And so we definitely have had some incredible stories of people who, who really just didn't, didn't know because they didn't have the desire to know, or they were in spaces Mm -hmm. where it just wasn't talked about. So for a wide variety of reasons, nonetheless, um, they come to a training and it says, this is amazing. And then those are the people that where it's fun because they're, they become a sponge and it's like, give me a book, give me a title. One of my favorite stories is, is there is this, this blonde woman and I I have to give this description, kind of this stereotypical white girl or white woman who just thought that, you know, she's liberal and, and, you know, has liberal thoughts and came (laughs) Right. And, and, and just was blown away by the workshop and started becoming hungry. And so she had her husband ask me to give him a title of a book 
to give to her on Valentine's Day that dealt with anti-racism. It's like, that doesn't get any better, That's, you know? <laughs> and so right? his, his gift to her was understanding and dismantling racism by Joseph Barnes. And so, <laughs> and she That's loved amazing. it. She's like, That's the best, you know, present. And then next year they're actually our, our civil rights tour. One of them falls on their anniversary and they're like, we're going on, we're going to go together um, on a civil rights tour. And that's the other beautiful thing is when you have, if you have a married couple and you have spouses who want to go on this journey together, because as you probably know, or yeah. can surmise or speculate when one person kind of sees the light and the other spouse doesn't, it becomes really, really difficult uh, in that person's journey of becoming an anti-racist and, and becoming a person who wants yes. to really do equity and justice work. Yeah, I am incredibly grateful for the fact that my husband is on the journey as well. But it is interesting because, you know, running a podcast and I'm constantly reading books and learning and, you know, doing these things, basically getting a degree on mm -hmm. this. And he can't quite keep up with that. But the other day <laughs> I went upstairs and he was ironing his shirts and he was listening to Stamped from the beginning. And I'm like, what are That's you listening amazing. to? I didn't even know he was because we're actually going to have a dinner party um, in September at my house where we're all mm -hmm. reading the book and then we're going to discuss it. So he was he was brushing up for it. But I didn't even think to ask him to read it because it is such a heavy, heavy, yes. long, you know, read. So I was just like, oh, that is a wonderful thing to have. But yeah, that has got to be really difficult. Yeah, it's funny. And you can find solace. And that happens in my house. My both my wife and kids, my kids are older than your kids. They're like, Dad, turn it off. I don't want to see another documentary. <laughs> I don't want to hear another podcast. And it's like, I'm just preparing. I got to be ready for whatever question someone's going to ask in a workshop. Right. And so, um, so there is that time where we do have to kind of turn things off and, uh, oh, it's and hard. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's yes. important, but it can be difficult. Cause yeah, I'm like, I finished editing my podcast. And so now I'm like, okay, now I've got to catch up on all my other podcasts that I listen <laughs> right. to. Right. How did you develop these events, this program? Initially, we used a lot of material from a ministry actually in Michigan um, uh, called CORE, uh, Congregations Organizing for Racial Reconciliation, about five years okay. ago now. Um, myself and, and a couple other people from our church had heard about it through a good friend of mine who lives in Western Michigan and said, you have to come to this workshop. You have to kind of learn about this way of looking at race and racism. And so uh, yeah. a group of us went and were just really blown away by the structure and just kind of how they led out the conversation. And um, a few years later, we just asked for permission to use some of their content initially. And that's what we did. And then over time, uh, I've started to develop and, and my team has started to develop, to develop other things that that we find more effective on the West Coast or in California. And so, mm -hmm. um, and as as we all learn and 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 get better at this, in terms of training and teaching, finding more effective tools to use. And so, um, so was, that was kind of the seed of it, but then just okay. a ton of, a ton of reading, really just a ton mm -hmm. of reading, 
and just um, a number of my facilitators are teachers by trade. And what I find is when you have people who already have the skill of teaching, and if they get yes. inspired and they start learning about this content, they're some of the most effective communicators because they already have the fundamentals of, of how to teach. And they become some of the most effective communicators and trainers that I have. So just a lot of books, a framework from core, and then just going around the country, looking at how other people do things. I'm always trying to travel and hear other people do this kind of work or read about it and you know take a piece here take a piece there i call myself the master curator <laughs> and so mm -hmm. why why yeah. reinvent the wheel when there's so much good stuff that's already out there yeah so then are there a lot of churches doing this work unfortunately no but i'm finding more and more that are and what's okay. happened for our center is we're getting invited more and more to um to go to other churches to do some of our trainings or to do some consulting on how to how to launch a center for racial reconciliation in their church. And so um, in a few months, I plan on starting a podcast that's going to be focused on reconciliation and uh, how to do it in the local church. And one or a few of the episodes that I want to do is to have some pastors, some white pastors come on who who transitioned their church, their church from being all white or predominantly white to mm -hmm. wanting to become um, multiracial or multiethnic. And so so I just really want people to learn how to do this and to yeah. just kind of take that next faithful step and saying it's messy, but we're going to, as a congregation or as a community, we're going to create space to have these conversations and have real conversations, not just kind of yelling matches or things like that. So so yeah, so for example, in, in next month, I'm going to be in Ohio at a church a few months later, I'm going to be on Long Beach here out in California. And then in January, I'll be in Houston uh, with my team doing these full day trainings and then also talking with those churches, uh, their leadership on how to um, how to start in these kind, how to start this kind of ministry and how to start small and really look at where your congregation is and where your leadership is. And, you know, we as I said, we started from the beginning saying this is what we wanted. I had the good fortune of being able to almost like have a blank canvas and to create things. And I know that's not mm. so in a lot of churches. A lot of churches are, one, let's take baby steps. How do we have a half day or right. how do we have an hour and a half and talk about this? And, and so the thing that I do find is it's really important um, in, in no church will it be successful if the leadership, like the real people who make decisions in a church, if they're not on board, at some point, yep. it's going to fizzle out and it won't be successful. Mm -hmm. For people who are listening right now who may be leaders in churches and, and they feel like, wow, this task is massive, but they really mm -hmm. feel a stirring inside of themselves to, to take a step. What would be a good first step other than calling you guys and having <laughs> you come and, and run things, which is an yeah. awesome thing. And I'm so excited. What would be a good first step for somebody that you would recommend? I think a great first step is, um, a book club. Um, Either, you know, All pick right. a book that has like kind of rudimentary racial reconciliation 101, or that's a book that's dealing with race and racism and, and start with a book club. Another great first step is I love Tasha Morrison's work, uh, Be the Bridge. Yeah. Um, yeah. Have, have a Be the Bridge group in your church. That's a great way to start. That's for me, I always look at the, what's your next faithful step instead of trying to look at something mm -hmm. that's massive of having a whole department. What's the one right. thing that you can do to 
to start. And I always think that the first thing to do is with a book club and then obviously um, do some work to make sure it's not just one person at the church who wants this to happen, but to get to, you cannot do this work in a vacuum. You cannot do this work by yourself. You have to have people. It has to be done through community. And so if you get a few people at the church who are really committed to this, to, for them to start meeting, for them to start praying about envisioning what could it look like? And if they're not mm. part of the, the decision-making of the leadership to go to mm -hmm. an ally on the leadership team who has some influence and start with that person and just okay. know that it's going to take a while. So for example, there's a church out here um, in California that I've been working with for almost three years. And it was just a slow process where it's just this couple and two other people at their church who wanted to, to do something. And little by little, they were able to now we're actually this upcoming week, they're going to have their own racial reconciliation workshop that's modeled a lot after the one that we do. And I'm not leading it. It's their own wow. folks that are leading it. But it took time. It was a slow process. And and I think that's the thing that's missing a lot of times in anti-racism work or reconciliation work is I, I always think of, you know, one of the fruit of the spirit is long suffering. And mm -hmm. that really means a long time. And people mm -hmm. just in, just a natural change, even if it's not the issue of race, getting people to change a habit, a behavior, a pattern takes a long time. And and we yeah. really want people to magically not be racist anymore. And that's right? just not the human reality. It's going to take time. And so you have to stay at it and you can be frustrated and you can disengage, but you got to reengage. And so just kind of mm -hmm. the, that process of engaging and disengaging, but making sure that you always go back to being engaged in this work and understanding that people are people and it just takes some time. So show, showing an enormous amount of grace and patience. And that's different from, that's very different from people who I just don't want to be a part of this. I spend zero time mm -hmm. with folks like that. And so I'm not talking about those folks, but I'm talking about the ones who, you know, have a seedling of, of interest. Yeah, I'm willing to spend or have some of my teammates spend a, a large amount of time with them to kind of grow mm -hmm. that within that person or that group. Yeah, I think that's so important. And it's so countercultural, right? And I would say particularly within the anti-racism movement that we see online. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's hard because there's so much shaming and there's so much outperforming and performative yep. allyship. And people are really oftentimes functioning from this place that they don't fully understand, you know, a trauma, a shame. And, and it's so difficult because it creates a lot of carnage in a sense. And it creates a yes. lot of dysfunction around something that is already so difficult. That has been really interesting territory to try to navigate from my end. But I am definitely long-suffering and patient yes. and just sitting <laughs> and observing. And, you know, because for me, like I really started engaging more uh, when Trayvon Martin was killed. That was my mm -hmm. moment of just kind of waking up and going, wait, 
there's something really different here. And it wasn't with his killing alone, but it was with the conversation surrounding that and the right. debates that were taking place. And for me as a communicator, I'm really interested in learning, like, how do people think? And then how do they communicate with one another? And what are the roadblocks to communication? And, you know, and, and it was just, it was so eye-opening to see the division and, and just the disconnection in those conversations. And that's when I yeah. started to realize like, whoa, we've got a big problem here. I No, I wholeheartedly agree with you. I, I appreciate you saying that. I mean, it is, there is a lot of carnage that occurs and there is a lot of what I like to say, wokeness, which mm. is pseudo wokeness. It's like, right. you know, people get a, a certain, a certain pieces of information where they start to see the light or whatever. And they want to just go right out and do. And one of the things that we say at the end of our workshop, because as you know, with a lot of white folks in particular, whenever they go through something like this and they feel something, it's like, what do we do? That's the first question right. and the, the yep. uh, most popular <laughs> question I get. What do we do? What do we do? Let's go attack something. And my response is you do nothing. You go and read and you go oh. and get in community and you learn before you say, because you're going to put your foot in your mouth <laughs> if you go out and you're, yes. you know, inspiration only takes you so far. You can leave my workshop and be inspired, but it, you're going to run out of inspiration. And what do you have left? Yeah. So, so for us, it's always the first thing that when someone is like, I want to do and I want to get engaged, it's like, sit down, you know, and read and process yeah. and not just read, but, but read with other people and, and make sure it's mm. a person of color and, and just kind of go through that process to get a deeper understanding rather than just knowledge. Knowledge is very different than wisdom. And God asked us to operate out of a, out of a point of wisdom and not out of just knowledge. I can know things. But until there's some wisdom behind it, if I just operate out of knowledge, then there's no nuance. It's just I'm just Ooh. downloading facts on people. But when you have wisdom, right. there's some nuance. So if you're talking about the issue of privilege and then to the 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 typical thing is, you know, check your privilege at the door or you all have privilege. And but a nuanced response is. Yeah, there are some people of color who have more money than you. But what are we really talking about when we talk about privilege? We're talking about priority. Right. We're talking about um, on balance, you're going to have something a little bit more than a person of color who's at the same scale as you are. So don't compare yourself with Jay-Z or somebody, Magic Johnson or whoever. Right. <laughs> That's a nuanced response, you know. Um, yeah. And then someone can kind of see it and it's like, oh, yeah. And so they don't then in turn, go out and start um, creating carnage with other white people by saying, check your privilege. And they only know a little bit, you know, they're uh. only like one step ahead of the other person. So for me, it's like, sit down, start reading, start learning, start engaging and make sure that it's, it's tempered with scripture and learn how to look at scripture through a different lens. We never, or we rarely look at scripture through the lens of race. And through the lens of equity and through the lens of positioning where, you know, what's the position of the person who's talking or whatever passage you're reading. Or if you look at the passage of do you want to be healed? For example, we'll look at that passage and it means everything except for do you want to be racially healed? And so right. um, for me, that's a that's a really important question. And a really, you know, that Jesus said, ask the man at the pool of Bethesda, do you want to be healed? In that context, he was talking about a physical healing. In our context, if we're talking about race, 
the question is just as pertinent, just as important. Do you want to be racially healed? And then looking at the, the man's response, which is he started giving excuses of why he wasn't healed. He never answered mm -hmm. Jesus's question like, yes, I want to be healed. And we do the mm -hmm. same thing. Do you want to be racially healed? Well, I can't be if those black people would do this or if these white people would do that. And they don't stop and say, yeah, I want to be healed. And so then, therefore, how do we make the proper diagnosis of what's going mm -hmm. on in our lives or in our community? Because I love looking at not just individuals, but looking at a community. And so for us, kind of going back to the tours, one of the things that we're going to start doing uh, in our tours is we have the, the longer ones, but we're going to do many uh, one-day excursions or many civil rights tours in our community. What's the racial mm -hmm. history here in Monrovia or here in Pasadena where our other campus is? Because that's going to impact how we relate and communicate with people in those neighborhoods. And that's how we're going to better be able to better show up in those communities and not look like some of the stereotypical ways evangelicals look on television and in the media. Mm -hmm. You said evangelical. So what, mm -hmm. e what do you think right now about the divide that we're seeing in the evangelical church or just in the church at large? You know, right now it's very common to hear that people are leaving behind the term evangelical or they're mm -hmm. separating themselves from this. And I listened to Jamar Tisby. I don't know if you're familiar mm -hmm. with him. He wrote The Color yes, of Compromise. Yes, I am. Yeah, and so one of the things that he talks about, I was just listening today, actually, and he was referring to himself as being sort of like, I'm going to botch it because I don't remember the exact term, <laughs> but instead of saying that he's an ex-evangelical or he's not evangelical, he was saying he's sort of on this parallel road. And he was talking a bit about the division that he sees within the body um, post like 2016, where a lot mm -hmm. of black members started leaving the more predominantly white evangelical spaces. What are your thoughts on that? I just wrote a, a short post on Facebook this past Saturday that didn't directly address like evangelicals, but it did address my deep disappointment in the church and just kind of, mm. um, and, and just the, for me, that's kind of where I am. There's, there's, it's kind of this mm -hmm. duality in a way. There's a part of me that's deeply disappointed and there's a part of me that's not surprised. And so, right. Um, yeah, just, for sure. Just, yeah, just kind of just the, the historical component. So for me, after the 2016 mm -hmm. election, for example, I made it a point to try to talk, talk to as many white male evangelicals over 50 that I could and have coffee or lunch with them and ask this one question. They have said that they voted for Trump. Knowing the history of how the evangelical world has taught us about what we're supposed to look at or look for in a presidential candidate, how were you able to reconcile that and vote for Trump, discounting and taking away that you just didn't like the other candidate or other candidates? Why did you affirmatively vote for Trump rather than I voted for Trump because Hillary was so bad? What were the affirmative reasons that you voted for Trump? And so and to really try to look into and get a gauge into what the reasoning was. And unfortunately, what I kind of deduced from all these conversations was there's a lot of fear. 
that was mm. um, emanating from them or that they were kind of feeling during the last election cycle and and a fear of 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 white men kind of not being in the historical prominent position, even though I think it's a misplaced fear because I don't think that's changed. Um, there's right. a fear of, of <laughs> right. There's a fear of this country becoming more brown and a concern about that. And that, to me, those are more the underlying things, the unstated things that were, are actually were and are actually operating in this. And so for me, there's a big disappointment that there's a reluctance to even critique for the evangelical, white evangelical church in particular, to even critique what's going on. So, for example, when mm -hmm. you saw the big 81% of white evangelicals voted for Trump, instead of a lot of evangelicals saying, let's take a look at that, because there's a strong complaint and this strong criticism coming from the media and from other parts of the church, they're saying that that's a bad thing, that there are 81%. Instead of saying, let's evaluate, let's look at that, let's consider this, there was almost this doubling down. Instead of saying, we may have missed something, there was, I know we didn't miss anything, and here's why he's a good president. And so, um, so that's where, for me, the disappointment comes from, is that there's a lack of, of self-critique or self-evaluation within a large, large swath of the white evangelical church. So you had said that you are going to be doing day trips, but I'd like to yes. hear about the civil rights trip that you do and how sure. do you prepare that? How big are the groups? What, you know, just like, sure. what is that like? Yeah. So four years ago, our church did first an exploratory civil rights trip where it was a group of us, it was 10 of us that went initially. And this was before the Center for Racial Reconciliation even was launched. Um, and I, at that time, I was just a church member. I was practicing law, but I got the opportunity to go with our church on this exploratory trip to go through the South and kind of look at the history of our country. And then through hopefully, and in, in our temp was to look at it through the lens of scripture, um, and kind of through the, the paradigm of reconciliation. And so we did that exploratory trip. And then a year and a half or so later, I came on staff and I wanted to keep that going. The one thing that I had noticed on the first trip that we went to, there wasn't a lot of prep around definitions. And so we did a lot of prep in terms of team building and things like that. But there wasn't a lot of prep on what is race? What is racism? Right. Um, okay. You know, and so what I found on that first trip was, you know, there's a lot more, there's a lot of conflict because people were functioning and operating off of their own definition. And so... um so that became a bit of a challenge. And so for me, when I came on staff and we knew that we were wanted to do these trips, continue to do these trips, we make it a requirement that people go through at least one of our workshops and so and get some of the basic common language and common definitions before they are able to go on the trip. And obviously we make modifications because we've had people from other states who've gone on the trip or and um and so we make sure still, though, even whoever comes, that they have this fundamental understanding of this is how we're going to look at this history through a particular lens. And so um, so in terms of our prepping, so we typically have between 25 to 35 people who for our Southern Civil Rights trip who, who will go at one time. And um, as I said, there's a requirement that they go through the workshop and that they do some pre-reading. We have some team building ahead of time before we go on the trip because we want to make sure people at least get to know each other. 
And again, that may mean somebody Skyping in who's out of state and who can't make those meetings. And then my team, we plan the trip. So we start in New Orleans. Uh, for us, we wanted to make sure we started at the beginning of race in this country. And so we go to the Whitney Plantation, which was, which is pretty much the only uh, plantation that looks at slavery from the enslaved Africans perspective. And so we start there and we spend a couple of days in New Orleans because we also want to make the connection between the past and the present. And so we travel through the Ninth Ward and look at what happened with Katrina and how a lot hasn't changed and look for connections. And then we continue to go through the South, Jackson, Mississippi, um, Little Rock, Arkansas, Memphis, Tennessee, uh, Selma and Montgomery. We, we make it a point to go to EJI, the Equal Justice Initiative, and go to the Lynching Memorial and their muse museum from slavery to mass incarceration. And then we will either go to Birmingham or we'll go to Atlanta, depending on the year and the cost of the plane tickets, to be candid. <laughs> so, sure. so, so that's our trip. But in addition to just going to sites, it's far more than just that. And so we've, we've created or I've created a reflection guide, kind of a devotional guide. So each day focuses on a different spiritual discipline. So one day is lament, another day may be confession, repentance, forgiveness, love, uh, and reconciliation. Some of those themes. And each day we have, everybody's required to, to use a reflection guide to answer the questions and the prompts that are there. And pretty much every night we'll have a debrief, a group debrief to kind of talk about what's happened. Where, where people are and what they experience during the day. And so, so we have that. And then in addition to that, when people come back, we try to meet a couple of times. And this year we're trying to make it more formalized. We're going to meet at least three or four times throughout the next six or seven months to keep making those connections. Because a lot of times when you go to these places, you'll make a connection a year later on something that you've seen today. And so a year from today, there'll be some sort of connection. Yeah. So we're just trying to help again, navigate that that experience with people. So it's more than just some historical or sociological excursion or trip. It's really something to help people to really get proximate with, with the history. You know, I look at Brian Stevenson when he talks about we need to get proximate to to the issue. I have broken that down even more that we need to get proximate with people. We need to get proximate with place and we need to get proximate with history. And that's how reconciliation is going to happen if those three things occur. So we do the Southern trip. And then this past summer, we added an Asian American civil rights tour, which was really interesting because there's different issues. And people are way more familiar with, oh, I understand why you go to the South. I understand why you do that. But why are we doing this Asian American trip? Again, for us, it's trying to make the table of reconciliation or the table of anti-racism as expansive as possible. And so we spent six days. We went, we flew up to San Francisco. We go to Angel Island, which is the equivalent of Ellis Island, which is where many Asians immigrated into this country. And we start to look at the history of Asian Americans in our country and how they've been marginalized in the China's Exclusion Act to right. some of the immigration issues of today, which some of the rhetoric and some of the language that we're hearing today was very similar to what we heard in the 20s uh, when more Asians were coming into this country. 
and definitely in the late 1800s when many Chinese people were trying to come into this country. It's the same language. And so it gives you a perspective and it gives you more of a tool so that what's going on today, you're able to look at it critically in a much you know, finer, critical way than if you're looking at this stuff in a complete vacuum. So we do those two tours. And then we are going to, as I may have mentioned earlier, do many civil rights tours, which is a miniature civil rights tour, because a lot of people can't afford to go or don't have the time to take to take a week off and look mm -hmm. at the history. Our first one is coming up in November. We're going to do a civil rights tour in the city of Pasadena. In Pasadena, there's a long history of redlining that occurred, and you still have neighborhoods that are impacted by what happened through uh, the history of redlining in our country. And so we're going to mm -hmm. look at Pasadena's educational system and housing system and to get a better idea of why people live, why different people groups live where they live in the city. It's not by accident. People don't choose to live in the communities a lot of times that they live in. They're, they're, they live in those communities because of certain forces or circumstances that have occurred because of state, local, or federal law. And so for us, it's important to look at that. And then the beginning of next year, um, we're putting together now a Latinx civil rights tour that's going to focus more on immigration. We're going to drive down to, since we're here in California, close to the border, we're going to go to Mexico and then drive up, up back north and just kind of look at different Latinx communities and talk about um, immigration. And again, it's about getting proximate to people, place and history. And I think that just gives people more tools to really analyze what's going on in our country and what's happening in our churches and in the evangelical world. So on our last, and this is in connection with our Southern Civil Rights Tour, we were on the trip and one night it just kind of dawned on me. And so the great part of being like proximate with history and proximate with place is that you really get to see, and I've known this, but it really became more prominent in my mind during this last trip that when we talk about civil rights, a lot of times folks, especially when you talk about civil rights in the South, you think of the late fifties and the sixties. But the reality is, is that civil rights started the moment that enslaved Africans were forced to get on ships to come to this country. And, mm -hmm. and I, and I think that gets lost on people. Like they so compartmentalize history or racial history. Well, there was slavery, mm -hmm. they skipped Jim Crow, and then there was a civil rights movement. And that, and that right. there's a certain narrative that goes on about enslaved Africans and the Native Americans, um, that they just were these docile people that didn't do anything, but at all points of our history, um, there were civil rights and there was the fight for liberation and the fight for equity and justice to occur. And, and I just, it just really hit me like a ton of bricks. And it's just like, wow, civil rights began the moment that enslaved Africans were forced on ships. And so yeah. um, that that's wow. just really helped me uh, in terms of just really looking at the necessity of huh. const the constant struggle that's needed and that this is not some new right. thing, that this has been going on from the inception of our country. So, mm -hmm. yeah. That is powerful. And if you look historically at different uprisings and in things, you know, in early colonial history, part of the reason that we even had this 
race creation in law, right? Mm -hmm. With Bacon's rebellion and, you know, these uprisings that came that like to learn that history, like you were saying, is so important. You know, a lot of times Mm -hmm. it's like, uh, I'm a white woman. I went through school. I listened to history a little bit and and I, I sort of developed my ideas in a vacuum so that when I started to hear and learn about the Chinese Exclusion Act and all of these things, I was completely ignorant of that history. I don't remember learning about it. Maybe I did briefly, but I did not understand that consequence. And then still to this day, the way that it echoes and the way that it impacts and that connection, you know, for me, it came through reading and learning and becoming open to, you know, just going on this journey for for greater understanding. So So, it's just so exciting to hear the heart of what you're doing in this work and mm. that people are doing this. Like, I love this. I got off the phone with you last week and I was just like, I feel this flicker of hope for the church. You know, I just like, I love that this is going on. And um, yeah, it's so exciting to me and encouraging. But so tell us where we can follow you, find you if you're on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Sure. Yeah, um, definitely the intergenerational piece. So I'm 55. And so I lean toward Facebook. I'm starting to get into Instagram and, uh, and Twitter, but you can find me on Facebook, John Williams. And if you put John Williams Fellowship, usually I'll pop up as the the first person. I do a lot of anything that I'm really writing or thoughts that I have will generally start on Facebook. Um, I'm just starting to get on Instagram. Going on our website, we have um, a whole page dedicated for the Center for Racial Reconciliation. You can reach me there or see some of the stuff that we're doing. If people are interested in some of the trips, we have actually some links up already to just say, hey, I'm interested and we'll send you information as well as any workshops that we're doing here at our church. Uh, people can register to do that. And we and we travel. Our team goes all over the place. So if there's, a, if there's somebody listening who's at a church or an organization mm-hmm. that wants us to come and do the workshops, email us or call us and we'll set something up. We we want to do more of this work. We want to see more churches and more organizations that are doing it uh, with the lens of, of giving a ton of grace, but also an equal amount of truth. And so we uh-huh. don't want this to be something that's just a kumbaya moment. We really want to sit in the truth and sit in the messiness of it but to sit in it uh, with an abundant amount of grace. Thank you so much. Thank you. And I definitely want to have you, when I uh, launch my podcast, I am really looking forward. You're going to be one of my first guests to, to come on. Oh, I would I love really to be on. want to hear your story as well. Awesome. Thank Thanks. you so much, Jennifer. Right. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks.